Did you know that over 60,000 new tracks are uploaded to Spotify every single day? That's a new track every 1.4 seconds, and that's just on one platform. With so much music now available, it's more important than ever to stand out from the crowd. So it's not surprising that more artists are starting to use less conventional sonic textures in their music, like field recordings. Perhaps you've always wanted to infuse the sounds of nature or your favourite city into your own tracks, but not having the right gear or knowledge might have held you back. Well, if that's the case, you're going to love the brand new guide I just created, teaching you how to start field recording with just a smartphone. And it's all yours for free at femalediymusician.com forward slash learn with Isabel. Yep, you really do just need a humble smartphone and some minimal extra gear that doesn't have to break the bank to get started with field recording. And I've laid it all out in this handy five-point checklist. So download it for free at femalediymusician.com forward slash learn with Isabel and elevate your music to the next level. The media loves a fairy story and the media loves to talk about somebody who is doing something unacknowledged kind of quietly in their garret or in their shed or making music. And then suddenly, wow, you know, they were discovered and then suddenly they're winning a Grammy or they're winning an Oscar. And, you know, journalists are guilty of perpetuating this this idea. And I've always been interested well, in the, in the fact that it really depends on luck, it really depends on happenstance. That was what led me to think about how people cope when the story doesn't go their way. Hello and welcome to Girls Twiddling Knobs. My name's Isabel and over the last decade, my self-produced and self-released music has amassed over 25 million Spotify streams. I also have a PhD in sonic arts, but I wasn't always this confident with music tech. In fact, I still hear those self-doubt gremlins in my head from time to time. I started this podcast to help more female-identifying musicians start recording and producing their music and learn from other women making music with technology. If that's your cup of tea, then you're in the right place, my friend. Let's dive in. Okay. So I said I'd give you a shout out on here if you rated and reviewed the podcast. And so this one's for you, Sharinsky, who says, These podcasts are brilliant and I hope there are lots of men also sneaking over to hear what Isabel has to say and share. Polished, engaging, grounded, and I always come away feeling I have had a session with a life coach. So many interesting conversations, pro tips and voyages of discovery. If you are a girl's twiddling knobs... You need this podcast in your toolbox. Your life will be all the richer for it. Well, thank you, Sharinsky. You're an absolute bloody star. And I am thrilled to know how much you're getting from these episodes. And if you're loving this little corner of the interweb with me and would get tingles all over your body, hearing me give you a good old hearty shout out too, you know what to do rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening from. I really do read every single one with a big massive grin on my face, sometimes when I should be practising better sleep hygiene. Could your review be the next one that gives me a big goofy grin, contributes to my poor sleep and gets you a shout out on here, dear listener? But I'm sure you're ready for me to stop oversharing my messed up relationship with my smartphone and get into this week's episode. And I definitely think you're going to find it fascinating. I am thrilled to welcome arts journalist, broadcaster and author Rosie Millard onto the podcast to talk about something that rarely gets discussed, especially in the wider media. What happens psychologically and practically when artists and creatives don't reach the dizzying heights of success and critical acclaim? How do we square this with ourselves after years of perfecting our technique and crafting our art form? Fame, fortune, or even just enough moment or even just enough momentum and resources to be able to just make music every day. Reaching these dreams is as rare as being hit by a bus as Rosie says inside this episode, and yet, as artists, we're expected to be aiming for them. 
at the beginning of this year, I tuned into BBC Radio 4 and came across a three-part series called The Dream of Success, which is part of the ongoing programme One to One. Inside, my guest today, Rosie, was interviewing three different artists about how they judge success and whether they feel they have or ever will get there. I was all ears because, as someone who has made and performed music for years now, and also teach other women to do the same, I know how tricky this is for artists. It was fascinating listening to Rosie speak with an opera singer, an actor and a novelist about how they all relate to this differently and what their life and creative practice look like as individuals. And I thought this would be a wonderful topic to discuss here on the podcast because it's something I know that you're probably grappling with if you're listening right now, dear listener. So buckle up because inside this episode, Rosie and I talk about what happens when the narrative arc of our lives goes wildly off course, where we pick up notions of success from an early age and the unexpected realities of following a creative path. We also consider, and this is very important, how a lack of privilege and opportunity can determine if we even dream of a career in anything, let alone music, and how we weather the ups and downs of the reality that this involves. But at the heart of this conversation is the belief that we should all take pride in the work that we do and the gestures we make both as individuals and communities too. I should also say that Rosie has been chair of BBC's Children in Need since 2018 and from 2014 to 18 was the chair of Hull City of Culture, which took place in 2017. She's also patron of Hull Truck Theatre and deputy chair of Opera North. So this lady is passionate about the arts, but I'll let her tell you more. Let's dive in. Great. So Rosie, thank you so much for coming on the Girls Twiddling Knobs podcast. It's so nice to have you here. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. No, no problem. I mean, I listened to your show on Radio 4 one-to-one. Um, and so far as as we're recording this, there's been two episodes aired. I know there's another one to come, so I'm very excited about that. But what I loved was the conversations you were having. I felt like it was so important to talk about this idea of success and the life of the artist and, um, you know, the idea of making it and perseverance and all those different tropes, I guess. Um, but before we get into that, and I would, I would love you to talk about, you know, why you decided to make those shows and um, what your relationship to these narratives is. I'd just love for you to introduce yourself to my listeners. Um, you, you, I mean, obviously you have a very, very um, wide and extensive experience of journalism and reporting on the arts. But tell us about yourself. Thank you. Okay, well, my name's Rosie Millard, and I'm an arts journalist. Um, I started off, um, I went to Hull University, I read English and drama, I thought, oh, yes, I I, I want to, to act, I want to be in the theatre, I love the theatre. Um, and then I, I went up to the Edinburgh Festival with a slightly disastrous production and no one came to see it. And, and you know, it's a, it's a common experience. But what I found was I was absolutely fascinated in all the other uh, elements and facets of the art world, um, visual arts, music, uh, theatre, obviously, but literature, um, sculpture, painting, the whole thing. And so I thought, right, arts journalism is, is more my thing. And I was very lucky um, because it was at a time when... The arts, it was a sort of the 80s, 90s, uh, where the, the the arts in Britain had had a bit of a sort of, I think, a slight abeyance, and then suddenly they really got going, and you had the sort of phenomenon of the YBAs, you had Britpop, you had Cool Britannia, the whole sort of Blair years. And I worked as the arts correspondent at the BBC, which was absolutely terrific. I, I did that for 10 years, and... It was in the time of the millennium. It was the time of the lottery, the dome. Um, people often ask me what my favourite story, what my best story was when I was at the BBC, uh, you know, covering the arts and culture for a decade. And I think without question, it was the, the, the conception, the fundraising for, the building of and the opening of Tate Modern. 
which was an amazing and moving thing to cover because I'd grown up, as I said, in the 70s, where contemporary art was sneered at, it was mocked, it was the era of the Tate bricks, it was the era of, oh, a child could do this, Um, an animal could do this, this is a nonsense, etc. People feared and loathed um, contemporary art. And suddenly, with the arrival of the Turner Prize, of Damien Hirst, of, of Michael Craig Martin and Tracy Emin and the whole phalanx of, 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 of provocative and disruptive artists, suddenly the general public got it. And you had, you had the, 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 the extraordinary moment when these visual artists who uh, until then had been, as I said, feared and loathed um, in equal measure, suddenly became household names. And the apotheosis of this, I think, was the, 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 the transformation of Bankside from a defunct power station into a power station for the arts. And, you know, a lot of money had to be raised. It was raised uh, by the lottery, so the general public funded it. It was also raised from donation and the Arts Council. It was a, it was a, it was, a, it was an enormous, it was a, it was a, a kind of a, a national movement, as it were, to create this cathedral to contemporary art. And and the moment I will remember, I was in the building up on the mezzanine floor. I was reporting on on the opening of, of this day. I'd been there all morning for breakfast news and blah, blah, blah. And I was doing it for, for Five Live, which was, a you know, the rolling news. I had my headphones on, had my microphone. I said, I'm up here in the, you know, the top floor of Tate Modern. Beneath me, the whole British art world is standing, waiting, you know, sort of like in the, in the big turbine horse of Gilbert and George and Vivian Westwood and Paul Smith and, 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 and all these people. And then, younger people and you know just you know a huge amount of extraordinary and 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 distinguished people and then Nick Sirota then director of Tate um yeah always looking kind of sort of uh, very dapper in his suit um came up and he just said thank you for 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 this moment thank you um tomorrow the doors will open the general public will come in free of charge the Queen is about to arrive. This is a great moment for 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 the world, um, and obviously for for the UK. And it was it it was a it was a life memory um, that that moment. And um, and every time my daughters, uh, you know, my eldest daughter is twenty three, and she'll go, "Oh, I'm meeting some friends today." I say, oh, "Where are you meeting them?" She'll take modern. You know, that is amazing. That a young person wouldn't, you know, I, I grew up going to the Tate as it was then on a sort of special thing. You'd go on a school trip or you wouldn't meet your friends there. And that is the shift, which I think, which I was lucky enough to, 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 to report on. And, uh, and it was, mm-hmm. it, 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 the repercussions are, are with us today and it changed the world that, that museum. Even, yeah, no, that's it. Yeah. It's it's wonderful hearing you speak, actually, Rosie, because on the one hand, I grew up in the 90s. So I was, you know, very much developing. I was becoming a teenager and a thinking, feeling, passionate teenager who loved Britpop, who loved contemporary art, who, you know, just was soaking up everything that was happening. And I think that there was a real sense of being proud to be British as well, but not in that traditional sense, <laughs> not in the sense that you often think of now, but more proud of the culture and the modern contemporary culture that Britain has to offer, whether that's music or art or, you know, theatre. And um, But at the same time, um, when I was growing up, my dad worked in the education department at the V&A. So he would, I was very, very lucky, I mean, incredibly lucky because he would take me up to the openings of the exhibitions that they had. And so little Isabel as a 12 year old would be brought up totally unaware of really what was going on. But I so recognised, I mean, I wasn't at the Tate modern opening, but I recognised the scene that you're talking about, you know, and I remember going to, um, it was the opening of the Versace exhibition at the V&A, for example, and being about 14 and just being totally 
on, on one level unaware, but on another level, so aware of what you're, you've just described yeah. Yeah. of the energy that was yeah. going it was, on. It, was, it was everywhere. It was in Sensation at the Royal Academy. It was the British Museum, Great Court. It was the National Gallery who had Lucian Freud in with showing his paintings up against Cezanne. It was, it was, it was a remarkable moment. And, you know, it really, I think, you know, there was sort of, there was, a, there was a campaign for Young's beer um, and it said something like no ordinary, no ordinary bitter. And it had, a, the, 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 the display was a man lying in a vitrine, lying in a, in a glass box. Um, and the reference was to Damien Hurst. Uh, you know, shark in a in a glass ca- in a glass box, or the the mother and calf divided, the, the cow and calf cut in half, and to have you know a contemporary artist's work riffed on by a beer company, and to know that people walking past would grasp that and also look up to it is phenomenal. I mean, it's 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 extraordinary kind of gear change in the in the mindset of the general public. Um, and yeah. and you know it was it was I mean to this day if you stopped someone in the street and said please name a contemporary artist a, a British contemporary artist or any contemporary artist frankly mm-hmm. um, people would be able to and that is not the case yeah. in the seventies it just isn't and the VNA was absolutely mm-hmm. and is brilliant and had a lot to do with that as well so good good on your dad. Yeah, yeah, no. So I mean, I I can I can imagine what you're talking about, and that means that the conversation that you've been having on Radio Four with the one to one programs that you've put together, um, I think it makes it even more interesting because you've you've come from this world that is very much um you know profiling people and reporting on people who are very much at the top of their game. They're, a lot of the time it can feel like an in-crowd, that it's very kind of um, rotating around a London elite. And and I think it's it's unusual to have that conversation um, where people talk about, ah, but what about all the people who are really talented but didn't didn't quite make that level of success? And, and even why are we perpetuating this narrative and what is this really about? And I think it's very unusual to to find that conversation going on um, in general, but certainly in the world that you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, well, the, the, the media loves a fairy story and the media loves to talk about somebody who is doing something unacknowledged kind of quietly, uh, you know, in their, in their garret or in their shed or making music and then suddenly... Wow, you know they 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 had a lot of knockbacks, um, and then they 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 were they were discovered, and then suddenly they're winning a Grammy or they're winning an Oscar, or, you know, or they had to try 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 again to get into drama school. Once they were in there, you know, they they flourished. It's quite important to know that, you know, in Tom Hiddleston's year at RADA, I think he's the only person who actually has made it into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You know, there are a lot of other actors in Tom Hiddleston's year in RADA. And, you know, people are going to go, oh, gosh, I'll go to RADA, then I'll become a star. Yeah, it's not like that. And, you know, journalists are guilty of perpetuating this this idea. And, you know, I, 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 I it, it, it sort of struck me um, that, that I've always been interested in, in people who, well, in the, in the fact that, it, it it really depends on luck. It really depends on happenstance. I remember when I was starting out in, in my career as a, as a reporter, I worked as a researcher on this morning, which was just brilliant, brilliant training because you dealt with, you know, I mean, I was doing it because I'm, I'm, I'm of a certain age. So I was doing it when Rich and Judy were presenting it from the dock in, in Liverpool. So every morning you would have a star to deal with um, you know, five models in hot pants, um, a parents of a child who was who had some terrible illness, um, and then um, Monty Don doing gardening, and then how to make a, a, a Christmas cake or whatever. You had that variety to, to manage, and and my duty that morning was to do the the prep and, and research. David Essex, who was a big kind of pop star in the seventies, and he said, "Well, 
you know, I, 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 I one morning I, 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 I was either going to go for an audition for some show called Godspell, um, which was an enormous hit, or I was going to go for a job as a lorry driver. And I've, that, I've always kind of thought, gosh, that is very interesting. You know, Godspell was an enormous hit. He was a star. He was then in um, uh, Evita. He had loads of hits. It, it, you know, he, he became a household name, but he could have been a lorry driver. And that really, that, that, that has always fascinated me to actually go and interview the lorry drivers who were, who, for whom the story was different. And I think that for me, it really came to, when I, when I really started thinking about this, um, I'm kind of going to give you health warming now. This is, this is a bit of a, the swerve here. Um, but when, when, okay. I, um, when I really started thinking about this was in, 2018 so um uh, well two and a half years ago summer of 2018 when I was uh, I went to the doctor had a bit of a buzzing in my ear I had tinnitus in one of my ears and I was discovered I had a huge brain tumor and I had to have this brain tumor taken out of my head it was it was sort of sitting on my brain it wasn't in my brain it was a it was not it was a benign brain tumor but it was very very large think about kind of like an apple um they always use fruit weirdly Um, yeah so apple at the top of my head so I had to have my 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 skull taken at, opened I had what was called a craniotomy which is one of my least favorite words but it was brilliantly done they took took off the skull um uh, and reached in and, and took out the brain tumor and then put the bit of wow. bone back and stitched everything up and hurrah no no brain tumor yeah gone um but you know I remember lying in bed in in um Queen Square in, in London and thinking, how did this happen? This is not part of the Rosie Millard story. The Rosie Millard story, you know, has has had some hiccups along the way, but basically it's an un it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a it's a straight line of you know fulfillment and working hard and la 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 and and, and you know success and happiness and etc. It's all great, and then suddenly you end up with a brain tumor. And I remember. This sounds very bourgeois. I remember going to the proms because it was in the summer, and and I was so freaked out by the fact that I had this thing in my head and I was going to have this terrifying. I mean, uh, this 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 operation in which there was an awful lot of jeopardy. I mean, I, I'm making light of it, but it was a very serious six hour operation, and it was just you know a lot of skill involved in in doing with it, which had nothing to do with me. I may say. Um, and I remember thinking, sitting at the proms, looking at the sort of 10,000 people in the Albert Hall, and what I had was not vanishingly rare. It is quite rare. Um, it's called a meningioma. Listeners may know about this. Um, about one in 10,000 people might have one. So I was thinking, in this auditorium, I am the only person with this thing. This is awful. This is a, this is a, my life is going to end. I'm going to die. This is terrible. And thinking, how how has this happened with the story of when a story is meant to be different so so and 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 even though i had a full recovery the, the whole thing is out i ran the marathon 6 months later for for the national brain appeal um uh, which is a very good charity and in case anyone wants to give any money to anything it's a good charity uh, but then so is children in need which i'm chair of so let's <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so it took me a long time to process the fact that I had had this terrible thing and that I could my life could still continue in a fulfilled and successful way um, and I could move on from that and deal with the 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 the, the, the change that had happened via this calamity um so so that was what led me to think about how people cope when the story doesn't go their way when you go to if you decide to be a novelist and you cannot get published if you decide to be an Mm -hmm. opera singer and know what and you're brilliant and the novelist also fantastic writer there's nothing wrong with 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 the, the actual meat of what they're delivering but it just doesn't work out. You don't have that chance meeting. Yeah. And 
how do you how do you manage? You know, the opera singer, he's working in an office and he doesn't he has an mm-hmm. ushering job at night. How does he square that with his early ambition mm-hmm. and his and his wish to succeed, his wish to sing these wonderful arias in front yeah. of a paying audience? How does the novelist feel getting up every morning and writing her words in a book which you know she's got no publishing deal and then and the, mm-hmm. and the, the piece which is to come is about uh, an actor who gave up his job in a bank to be an actor and he's never got any further than an amateur dramatic company and he's gone back to working mm-hmm. in an office he's working for an aviation firm he does amateur dramatics every weekend if people say what do you do he says i'm an actor because he is an actor mm-hmm. So that, that, that's, that's what interested me. Yeah, and I think um, it's a really interesting one, you know, you talking about your story, that the Rosie Millard story, what happened with your health was not written in that story no. for you. And, you know, having to level with yourself and accept that the story has changed. Yeah. And... And I think that's a really, really difficult, you know, like like your, your like your Radio Four series shows, and like lots of people listening to this podcast. It's such a difficult one, because even you know when I think about my career, and I look back on my career, and I think, um, and I've been you know professionally making and performing music for twenty years now, which is kind of nuts. But when you're a musician, you start pretty young. I was performing professionally from sixteen. So, you know, wow. you you yeah. start doing stuff pretty young. Um, and so I look back and I think I've done some amazing things and I, I feel so, so lucky. And one of the things you mentioned in your um, in your talk with Patrick Eggersborg, the opera singer, is he was saying how he doesn't regret dreaming big because it meant that he could do all these incredible things. He pushed himself and he he kind of took risks and did things that were really interesting. And he would have never done those things if he hadn't have dreamed so big. And I totally resonate with that. Like I have a PhD, I've released four albums. They've done things I would never have imagined they've done my music because the, the technology didn't exist. Spotify didn't exist. But the thing that I thought would be my story is that I would get signed to a big record label, I would tour the world, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that hasn't been my story. And I similarly, I've had experiences, really difficult experiences with my health. I have tinnitus. And then after getting tinnitus, I developed chronic pain. And um, I've had horrendous years of not even being able to wash my own hair because of being in so much pain in my wrists, um, not being able to sit down because of so much pain um, in my in my back and my body. And, um, and, you know, really having to make big decisions about can I can I even, you know, go and meet a friend and have a, a, a bite to eat at a pub? Can I sit down for that long, let alone can I be a professional musician? And so I I really had to walk away from that dream because that dream was not serving me anymore. It was, I it was like hitting my head against a brick wall and like, no, this is my story. This is my story. This is who I am. And my body and my life and my, you know, my mental health and everything that was going on at the time just was not that story. And, um, and it's one of the most liberating things I've ever done is to hang back and, and have to accept Isabel, you know, you're enough if this story doesn't, the story arc doesn't go exactly how everyone told you it should when you were the best singer at school and you were 11 years old, you know? And I think that I I would love to kind of talk a little bit now about where does this story come from? Because I know from a personal point of view, um, I really stood out at school, like I just said, for, for having a really good singing voice, but I was dyslexic. And I was really, really not very academic. I found it so hard to just get through the basics of maths and spelling and all those things. So for me, um, becoming an artist, like that was it. That was what was going to happen. And everyone just presumed that would happen. And anything other than that, immediately from a very early age, felt like a failure. In my head, even as like 11, 12, I was like, if I don't make it, then pretty much I'm, I'm nothing, you know, because everyone's expecting this of me. I have no other talents. I'm not, I'm not exceptional in any other way. So I have to do this. And if this doesn't happen, then who am I? What, what am I? What's my worth? Um, 
so yeah, I mean, maybe we could talk a little bit about that. I mean, do you do you relate to that in any way, Rosie? Did you feel that growing up in any way? Yeah, obviously. I mean, yes, because you know it is, it, and I can see it with my own children. You know, you you want as a parent to say, oh, you know, you can do anything you like. You can be successful. There comes a moment where you have to say, no, you're you're good at tennis, but you're not going to win Wimbledon. I mean, you know, I think I think I think in Britain, I don't know. I was going to say we find it easy to do that with sport, but maybe not. I mean, there's a lot of little boys out there wanting to be footballers. Um and in a way, it's very good to have ambitions. It's very good to 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 think, yes, I could be like that. Yeah. And and actually, I'm just thinking about, you know, our story and everything just quickly. Um, can you tell us how you think your story started emerging? Well, uh, certainly, I think with girls, you want to please. And, you know, I think wanting to be a people pleaser is a very dangerous um uh, thing to do you know I grew up in a, in a in a medical family my parents were doctors my brothers and sisters are all doctors and nurses so you know I like the arts so so it was like oh you can be successful in the arts and and when you're a, if you want to be a doctor or a nurse um yeah it's not it's not a walk in the park but you go to nursing college or you go to medical school and you train, you get on the escalator, you get off 40 years later, you know, you train and you've got a kind of fighting chance of being that thing you're training for. But but the arts is completely different. Um, and, and uh, you know, well, journalism isn't that is not that rare you know you go to I went to journalism college I trained to be a a a journalist after my degree I went to the London College of Communication and and uh and trained to be a hack and that training was yeah I then walked into a job uh uh, you know so 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 it was a much easier uh uh option and much more suited to me um I think that people you know we normally in in every day you will cross a road most days you'll walk across a road now you know there is a chance that a a bus could hit you when you cross that road or a car or something awful could happen and you could perish but that would be bad luck isn't it I mean wouldn't it and you 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 would you, you so you weigh that up when you're crossing a road every day. You think the chances of, of me having a fatal accident as I'm walking across this road are slim, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go with it. I'm gonna. But good luck is the same. It's as rare, you know. Really good luck, kind of yeah, you know, winning the lottery classically, or or getting cast in a play, or having that kind of you know moment where you are like like Kate Winslet. Ordinary jobbing actress one day, and Kate Winslet mega star the next. Um, I mean, it, it, it's 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 very interesting. I remember interviewing Kate Winslet at Cannes, uh, the Cannes Film Festival, wow. when she had just done. Um, I think she'd been in in um, Jude the Obscure, uh, the movie, um, and um, yeah, she just started out. I mean, she was so, she'd borrowed, I remember her borrow, she'd borrowed a Gucci jacket from a friend of hers um, to wear for the for the interview because, you know, she didn't have any smart clothes to wear. I mean, she was, she was, <laughs> she was like a normal person. Um, yeah. And I then interviewed her years later when she was nominated for an Oscar and it was at the Dorchester and you had to cure, you know, you had your slot, you, had to, you know, she had obviously hair and makeup and beautiful clothes and you know she was a completely different thing um but you know the 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 things that went her way to be like that yes they depended on her being a, a a a very very convincing actress and a very able and good actress but also they also depended on luck um and that crossing the road thing, and 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 I'm interested in people who have, you know, who haven't become like Kate Winslet. Mm-hmm. Um, I think 
I think there's a bit of kind of celebrity fatigue also, um, you know, because there is a similarity. It's like Tolstoy never said, you know, um, every happy story is, is happy families are the same, but unhappy families are unhappy in, in different ways or something like that. Um, uh, so, so stories of success sometimes you know, tend to have the same arc stories of mm. of of disappointment don't um and i think yeah. and i think that you know like you with your music career or 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 me lying in bed at queen square thinking god what is this huge bandage on my head doing um you have to deal with what what you're given um and you have to cope with that and that is hard but a lot of people yeah. a lot of people have to deal with that um, mm-hmm. You know, and and yeah. and you know about uh, twenty fourteen. I mean, another another of my um, uh, sort of anomalies, I suppose, in in the in the Rosie Millard um, uh, story is going to Hull University. Uh, it was a, a it was a bit of an outlying choice for some, you know, it wasn't sort of like. I don't think anyone in, in my family had ever heard of Hull University, and I and I went there, yeah. and uh, it was in it was in the eighties. It was a very it, it, Hull had just had both of its main um, uh, industries knocked back in a very significant way: the ports and the fishing um, uh, trawling industry. And you know, it was a it was a very uh, it was a a place of 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 it was a very remote place. It was isolated. It was disadvantaged, but it was great. And um, I had the enormous honour and pleasure to to lead the the city when it was a city of culture, twenty sixteen. Yeah. Um, and I started out doing that in 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 twenty fourteen, and I got to know. I was at university there, but I didn't really know the city when I was there as chair of the board. And also, I was a governor of a, a, a local primary school in Hull. <clears throat> then that's when I got to know the city. And I got to know people, you know, who had not grown up going to the theatre the whole time, as, as I did. I, who had not grown up going to Tate Modern or the V&A. Uh, you know, who'd not grown up leaving the city or even going to the city centre. You know, let alone seeing the Humber Bridge, seeing the sea, going to London, you know. That it's a low-income place, and people in Hull did not or do not travel that much because there's not that much money there. And mm-hmm. one of the great things we did in the year was to bring work of amazing quality and remarkable distinction to the city, not just to sort of parachute in and say, oh, here's great art, but to work with the people in the city to work with the musicians in the city, to work with the wonderful theatre companies, the remarkable galleries, so that so that the whole of the arts provision of Hull, which is great, was put onto it was was enhanced, and that you know small children could see the Royal Ballet dancing, and the Royal Ballet came and opened Hull New Theatre. Uh, which which is not new. It was it's a it's a nineteenth century building, but it had been uh, totally refurbished because of the year. And Kevin O'Hare, who is the director of the Royal Ballet, is from Hull, and Hull has this weird sort of happenstance that they 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 train a lot of dancers, ballet dancers, um, and and a lot of male dancers come from Hull who are now. Mm-hmm. In- well, there's a, the, the, the Marinsky uh, Theatre, the Marinsky Dance Company, um, the Royal Ballet, Birmingham Royal Ballet, the, these guys come from Hull. Um, wow. And, and, and some women as well. It's not just not men. Um, anyway, uh, the Royal Ballet turns up and it has a one-off gala night at the, uh, at the Hull New Theatre to open it. And everyone wants a ticket. And there's only a certain amount of tickets that, that can be had. So so rather than having a rush or selling the tickets for a, an awful lot of money, we decreed that 
the only the people who should come in the stalls would be children and children who love dance. Um, and 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 people, guests and, and, and so on were up in the circle. And then outside we had a huge screen with a with a, uh, a relay of what was going on, on stage with 10,000 people sitting in the in the in the park watching it and the whole cast came out afterwards and did a, a formal bat so everyone saw saw it but i was in the theater in the whole new theater up in the in the circle with the um uh, with the chief executive and you could hardly hear the piano there was no orchestra it was a piano playing for the dancers because of the talking and the excitement and the rustling of sweet wrappers and of the children who were sitting in the in the stalls and you know and and on the stage on the the proscenium arch stage it just said it said whole new theatre whole city council who funded much of the thing the royal ballet and I thought that's a great combo whole city council the royal ballet and the curtains opened and Kevin O'Hare the director of the royal ballet stood on stage and he said it's great to be home we were all in pieces we were just i'm I'm welling up telling you about it because you know for a child you know who's not had huge advantages who's not got a sense of entitlement of like oh i can do this and i can do that you know which which advantage children do have it's really important for for children to get a glimpse of what they could have. I mean, this goes counter to what I'm saying about, like, make make your children, make them understand reality. I think it's important yeah. for, for people to see kind of what's out there. And the great thing about the City of Culture is that it, 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 it was realistic. It did, it did not say everyone is, 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 is going to have, you know, jam today, <laughs> but 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 what what it was saying is there is wonder in your city, and just mm-hmm. just just look at it. Don't think about leaving it in order to find your fame mm-hmm. and fortune elsewhere. Look at what you have, and and mm-hmm. in, in and and make the most of what you have. And I think that that is also. I think that's important, and um, you've done that. Yeah. You've you you've 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 yeah. made what you you've made something of what you have. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, and I, I can really relate to you know what you're talking about about going to university in Hull. Well, when I did my MA and my PhD, that was in Belfast, um, which is so different. That's like, so different from where I grew up. I grew up in Lewis, just outside Brighton, probably the most liberal part of the country probably you know outside of pockets of London um and I went to Belfast and um spent 10 years in Belfast met my partner he's a visual artist from West Belfast from the Fool's Road had a very different upbringing to me you know I mean his his parents always really encouraged his creativity and his art and have really believed in his ability to follow that but you know he was never brought up to the VNA to the Versace opening ex- of the, the opening of the Versace exhibition or brought to the theater or all those things that my dad so kind of um my my that was the thing that my dad was so so intent on was that we would have those experiences because he didn't have them growing up you know my dad grew up in rugby and and he only moved, he moved to Lewis when he was about 17 so he really really wanted us to have that that upbringing and to to expose us to lots of different ideas and cultures and art forms. But my partner didn't have that in the same way just because of where he lived and where he grew up. And when he was growing up, it was a war zone. It was the Troubles. He grew up on the Fool's Road in the 80s and 90s, you know. So the idea of then going off and seeing some, you know, contemporary art exhibition was just not not going to happen in the same way. Um, and so I totally, I totally kind of understand what you're talking about there and when I went to Belfast what I loved about it was just how people were um there was a sense of community around the various art scenes so the music scene was very much about us coming together and even me as someone who wasn't you know wasn't from hadn't grown up there 
I, I was part of a, a scene rather than I was competing in a scene. It didn't feel like that. And the contemporary art scene as well that my boyfriend has been very much a part of. Um, again, it's much more about building something because Belfast does not have that reputation. Um, it does a bit more now and it's an amazing city and it has fantastic galleries now and fantastic music and, you know, all of all of those things. And but I think that I, I just loved how people were so focused on actually, you know, helping each other to build something. Yeah. I mean, I think that I think if there's a message out of these three programmes um, and actually from your own example um, and, and, and possibly mine, I think it is that you, you think, right, this is what I've got to deal with. This is the, this is the, this is the set. This is the train set I've got to play yeah. with. I'm going to do something of my own accord. I'm going to do something on my own terms and I'm going to, 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 to do something that fulfills me. And I'm not going to wait for, yeah, I'm not going to go on a course and then something is going to happen from it. I'm not going to wait for something to land in my lap. Like, you know, like, like, like the princess and the frog, you know, she has a ball lands in her lap and, you know, and suddenly all she kisses the frog and it yeah. turns into a prince. That is not going to happen. What, what I think we have to tell children, and it's hard because again, our educational system is a bit like an escalator. I used to get on clamber off later. You have to do it yourself. You have to get up. You have to write that book. Um, you have to, if you don't get into drama school, go to, to do amateur dramatics. You'll find it fulfilling, mm-hmm. just the same. Mm-hmm. Um, have pride in it. Have pride in whatever you do. Uh, have have pride in 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 arranging flowers, in in cooking a meal, in yeah doing the ironing I mean you you know I I I, you have to take joy in in everything in life I think and and try and do it well and to the best of your satisfaction and then there is satisfaction out of that and there is happiness and I think you're just waiting for for the phone to ring and for kind of a miracle to happen you, you're going to have a life of, of, of disappointment. It is hard because a lot of people's work depends on a commission or a lot of people's work depends on people saying yes. Um, and it's very hard not to say, oh, keep on trying. But sometimes it's not worth keeping on trying. You're going to have a life of unhappiness. So do mm. something else. Always keep moving, mm. um, I think, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, I, I I can really relate to you know that idea of of having to sort of look at what's in front of you. That you said the train set, like what can I do with this? Um, and and I think that there's something so so much more fulfilling. You know, I mean, it's obvious when you say it, but something so much more fulfilling by being resourceful and looking at what you have to hand and saying, right, I'm going to do something with this, and I don't actually know where it's going to take me. And but I I will do this and maybe that will, you know, involve other people eventually. And maybe that will eventually help other people in some way or enrich other people or fulfill other people. But I'm not just going to sit and wait for someone to come to me. And, And there's a phrase that I have really found sums this up that I said on the podcast before, which is this idea that no one is coming. And I think a lot of us, a lot of the time as artists and also as humans, there is this narrative that if you do all these things and you kind of dress yourself in a certain way and you you talk about things in a certain way and you turn up to things, someone will come along and give you a chance. And that does sometimes happen. But like you say, it's so rare that it is as, as rare as being hit by a bus. Um, what What is so much more fulfilling, though, and will give you so much more confidence in the long run is knowing I did that, even if it's a small thing, I did that with what was to hand and I know I can replicate that again. You know, I know I can replicate that again. Um, and I think where I, where then there's a tricky balance is having that resourcefulness and that independence, but then also being open to those people that come into your life because you do need other people and you do need a team to kind of grow and and push forward and do even more amazing things. So it's getting that balance and having that openness of 
Um, I don't know what's going to happen, but at the same time, I kind of have a plan and I can do stuff myself, but then I can't do everything myself. So I'm open to people coming along. So hard to get You have to be a combination of of Mr. McCorber in in David Copperfield, who who always is like something will turn up and a shark. You have to be a shark who's always moving forward uh, and, and Mr. McCorber. So, you know, for Dickensian fans out there who are horrified by this analogy, uh, I apologise. <laughs> um, for, for fishy fans out there who are horrified by this analogy. <laughs> yeah, no, but that's it, isn't it? It's that paradox of having to hold those two approaches and, and probably more than two, actually. Um, and and I, for me, what I found is... Um, I know it sounds really cliche and everything, but I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life since fully accepting this and fully embracing this. And what I've ended up doing the last two or three years since really walking away from, you know, pushing, pushing, pushing at my music career, what I've what I've ended up doing is working with lots of pe- other people, lots of other female musicians and contributing to women in electronic music in a way I never, ever could have imagined, ever because I was so focused on myself and I was so focused on being okay, you know, proving that I was going to fulfill that narrative arc that everyone had expected and I had expected. And as soon, when I've been able to let that go, then I've been able to put that focus onto other people as well. And that has been very, very fulfilling. And I think, you know, there's something that, that there's a thread going through this conversation, I think, of turning that focus outward a bit more. And, you know, you you experiencing that in Hull, me experiencing that in Belfast, um, that we're brought up, on, you know, at the moment, I think we're still brought up, maybe even more so, to think of ourselves as an individual and an individual who has to make impact and has to be exceptional and has to be, you know, all of these things. But there's not such an, not such an emphasis on or what community are you part of? What what's going on in your town? What you know? What what scene are you part yeah, of? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that something you've noticed in you in you know your children, Rosie? Do you think it feels different? Do you feel think it feels even more exaggerated now? Um, I think, I think, I think it's uh, uh, well. They're all in a kind of jungle at the moment of 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 sort of covid uh, anxiety and and chaos i think that um i think there is still a notion that if you do a course you'll end up doing something and 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 yet um you know the 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 actual kind of like landing on a job seems to happen in a sort of alchemy like sort of total luck or knowing someone i think uh, i think I think a lot of it is about. Uh, I think, I, I, I think success is still uh, very closely bound to uh, uh, an unfair and illogical educational system, um, where a small percentage of children have an enormous advantage over everyone else. Um, I, I find that abhorrent and 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 totally wrong. Um, and I think that also the the um, the financial structures and and just simply the, the 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 cost of being able to find your own house and living is is now kind of so far out of reach that that young people are being forced to make quite difficult assumptions like I will live with my parents you know until I'm 30 I mean my children live with my ex-husband um so 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 he's got that to 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 manage with I mean they're not 30 but the oldest one's 23 um and uh I think that's that's very hard whereas when I was growing up you know the, the assumption was by the time you're 21 22 you'd have left home um yeah and 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 striving out on your own and yeah it was manageable because rents were kind of they, they were they were achievable um mm-hmm. and i think i think also in britain there is still a, a, an all pervasive idea that you've got to be in london which i think is 
you know, wrong. Um, like you went to Belfast. I My first job was in Newcastle. Um, yeah, my second job was in Liverpool. I've worked all over the place. And and I think that that it's very good to to just basically go out and start your start your enterprise elsewhere other than in in the big metropolises. Um because yeah, I mean I think with, with Brexit that's another yet another anxiety on, on young people because you know when when you you could have gone to Dublin, for example. Uh, you know when when borders were 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 available, you could have gone to Paris. You could have gone to Berlin. Um, there's a sort of big music scene in Berlin. I think <laughs> you would know. Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> no, especially electronic yeah. music as well. Yeah. yeah. So so I think that um, I think there are a lot of pitfalls. I and I think yeah, I think the media. Uh, is 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 a sort of Aunt Sally and blame for everything, but I do sort of, I do despair sort of when I when when you when you open the paper and you see uh, a dress advertised for five hundred and seventy quid and you think or a bag for thirty thousand pounds you yeah. just think oh come on you know I know it's it's kind of it's it's crazy I mean sometimes when you look at some of those Sunday lifestyle yeah. sections. And like you say, they have like the budget section where there's a dress for 50 quid and then you've got the mid-range section dress for 200 quid. And then, you know, beyond that, they've got ones for 500, 1,000 quid or something. And you think, what what the actual, this has nothing to do with my life, you know. But but I, I totally agree with you that there are so many factors now that are, you know, in lots of ways working against the idea of following a dream in uh, not in every way. I do think that there are factors that are very much working in favor of it too. But, um, and, and I think it's interesting. I'm kind of thinking about how I've only spent three years living in London in my life and I hated it. I absolutely hated it, which is not to say you can't enjoy living in London. I know lots of people that did and have and do, but, um, you know, I went to Dartington College of Arts to do my undergrad in Devon, loved it. Um, there was nobody there who had ever, I think there was one person there who'd gone to a private school. Everyone was bonkers. It was basically um, like almost like somewhere to stick the crazy artists um, in the countryside. And so it was, I, and, and then even when I went to Belfast, I hardly knew anyone that had gone to private school, hardly, you know, it was, the, and, but that's the Russell Group University at Queen's. So I've, I, I've kind of not really been exposed to it as much as some people I know growing up who did go to Cambridge or did go somewhere like that. Um, and I, and I totally agree that it's really important to have pride in who you are, where you're from, the, the community that you're around, but also the things that you even even your everyday tasks that you're doing, like ironing, if if that gives you fulfillment, take pride in it, you know. Um, and I think it's it's so difficult when you are having to yeah deal with the idea that you might have to live at home with your parents if you're lucky enough to have a relationship where you can do that. Um, just to be able to even save up enough to have a deposit to rent somewhere. And and I, I've had that. And I'm not even from, you know, a really, really unprivileged background. Um, I went to a state school. My parents have always worked in public, public service type jobs. I do not come from money, but I've never been in a situation where, you know, I've I would ever call myself working class or from a struggling background and I have had to make those choices it's crazy um so I really hope that people listening to this if there's uh, there will be people listening to this who have been doing the psychological gymnastics of why has my music not been picked up or I never feel like I get any chances or I feel like I've given up too early. I just need to keep hitting my head against that wall of the dream. Or if you're feeling like the idea of the dream is not working out for you. I really hope this conversation that we've had today is helping people to see that there are so many different factors pulling in every which way. And that really focusing on that is more about trying to prove that you're okay, that you're acceptable, that you're, it's almost like when you're at school and you're like, please pick me to be part of the netball team, or I hope I'm part of the popular gang. 
and that life is so much more filling on the other side of that. I mean, I don't know if you agree I with do. that, Rosie. Yeah. Do you feel? I do agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we are in co parts. <laughs> yeah, we're in agreement. Um, yeah, and that, like you said, there are so many people out there who have not grown up in that metropolitan, you know, bubble that have grown up in lots of different parts of the country or just parts even of London or of Brighton or wherever, where that 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 I that dream is just doesn't feel attainable at all. Um so yeah, I, I just I hope that what people take away is this idea of shining that focus onto things that are really going to give you fulfillment. And um but but I have to end on this though. I have to end on this though. Isn't it just so natural? if you put time and effort into something, if you put your heart into something, is it not just natural that you want other people to notice and you want to share that with people and you want it to to elevate you in some way to the next phase of your life? When I became chair of Hull 2017, I went to see Phil Redmond, who was uh, in charge of the choice of the selection of um, the City of Culture. And uh, I know Phil. Um, I've interviewed him a lot. He's a remarkable man. He runs, um, well, he ran Mersey Television. He created Grange Hill. He created Brookside. He created Hollyoaks. Um, he's a professor of media studies. I think he's knighted. Yeah, he's in Liverpool. And me and uh, Martin Green, the, the 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 brilliant chief exec of Hull 2017, who is now running the Commonwealth Games uh, opening and closing ceremonies and the, uh, we will not call it the Brexit Festival, festival um, in Birmingham. And he's an amazing man. Anyway, we went to see Phil. And Phil said um, he was very involved. He ran Liverpool Capital of Culture which was in uh, uh, 2090. No, what am I talking about? 1990. He said, the the, the British media, they may hate what you do in Hull and people outside Hull will really criticise it and they won't like it. And Hull had a very, very bad name. It had a terrible Mm -hmm. character, if, if people even knew where it was Um, because that was before it was on the weather map, and since uh, 2017 it's been on the weather map, so hurrah, um, on on the television. (laughs) Um, And uh, and he said, ignore them. He said, what you're doing, first and foremost, is for the people of the city. That is who it's for. Ignore everyone else. And I thought, that's fantastic. I mean, you know, I was a national arts broadcaster and journalist. Obviously, I wanted national acclaim, I wanted to have the, the, the you know newspapers. I wanted I wanted bulletins. I wanted front row. I wanted every single person to come and go, hurrah! This is amazing, which they did. <laughs> but mm-hmm. first and foremost, it was for the community of Hull. It was actually in, in the in the in the, the bullseye of the event was for the children, and young people in Hull, and then it was for, and then it was for everyone in Hull. And then it was for everyone in the East Riding, and then it was everyone in Yorkshire, and then it was everyone in in Britain, and then Europe, and then mm-hmm. you know the universe. Um, and uh, and that was really that was really good um, because I just I just thought get off your high horse, Rosie Millard, stop kind of wanting huge acclaim. It's not about you; it is about mm-hmm. the, the 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 public in Hull, and uh, that's yeah. and that's who we did it for. And I stand by that, and and it was great. And and he said, if people want to come and enjoy it, who are outside from Hull, brilliant, let them come. But mm-hmm. first and foremost, it's for these guys. Yeah, yeah. Know know who your audience is and deliver it to them. Absolutely. And I think it's easy when you're like, you know, when you're an artist, you're a musician, and especially right now when we're not even doing live gigs, you can feel very detached from the people who actually would listen to your music. But even if that's one person, you know, the example that you're giving is a whole city, but even if it's one person, 
if you touch that person and you've written a piece of music that in some way encapsulates how they're feeling and potentially there's nothing else that's done that yet, that's incredible. You know, that's so, so unusual. And I think it's great advice to be kind of thinking, right, who who am I doing this for apart from me? And it's important that you're doing it for you as well. Um, and I, And it does make me think about the idea of when you're an artist, serve the work, don't serve yourself. You know, so serve the music. What does the music need? Or if it's, you know, contemporary, like visual art, whatever it is, serve the work. Don't serve your ego, especially, or serve yourself because you often then end up focusing on the wrong things, not really enjoying the process and being disappointed with the reception, <laughs> no matter how successful it is, actually. Um, so I think that's a great great place to end. Um, who's your audience? Who's going to benefit from this? Who are you doing it for? And serve the work, definitely. Nice. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Rosie. It's my absolute pleasure. I absolutely could not agree more with Rosie that it's so vital to feel proud of who you are and where you are and to take pleasure from the things you do rather than focus on outward acceptance and critical acclaim. Easier said than done, I know. But becoming more grounded in this is a far better use of our energy as musicians than chasing outward success that is, in reality, much more out of our control than the media might have us believe. Like Rosie suggests, know your audience. Know who you're doing what you do for. Doing it for yourself is totally valid, by the way. And this will carry you forward through a lifetime of making music. Because talent, hard work and perseverance are not necessarily the cultural leveller, the media, and dare I say the government, might have us believe. In reality, whether your music touches just one person, your hometown, or thousands of people on the internet, we must serve the work. It has unique worth in and of itself and feeds our souls. I'm so glad Rosie could come on and discuss all of this with me on the podcast. And if you're curious to listen to her fabulous three-part series, The Dream of Success, on BBC Radio 4's one-to-one programme, the link is in the show notes. I thoroughly recommend listening if the topics we've touched on today have been racing through your own mind, as they often do in mine. And you can also head to Rosie's website, rosiemillard1.com that's rosiemillard1.com to find out more about all her wonderful work too and remember I want to hear what you think of girls twiddling knobs and give you a shout out too so make sure you rate and review the podcast now and share the love Now, next week's episode actually follows on quite nicely from today's because I'm going to be sharing why I'm not going to be making another album Or I should really say, not conventionally releasing another album, at least not anytime soon. Sounds weird coming from someone like me who's already experienced success releasing my music and hosts a podcast about recording and production, right? But I promise it makes sense and it isn't quite what it sounds like. I'm going to be sharing the alternative route I'm plotting in my mind and why it's making me excited to make and share music again. So this is a really good Isabel behind the scenes. But till then, take care and I'll catch you in the next episode. Girls Twiddling Knobs is hosted and produced by me, Isabel Anderson, with production support from Francesca O'Connor and is a female DIY musician production. So, how do you like that episode, dear listener? If you loved it, And you know someone else who would love it too. Be a good friend and share it with them. Go on, spread the girls twiddling knobs love.